The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at The Spectator. Over the last 40 to 50 years, thousands if not tens of thousands of young girls and and young women across Britain have been abused, raped and some of them brutally murdered in what we know as the great grooming gangs scandal. Last week, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and his Home Secretary Suella Braverman announced policies to deal with the grooming gang and uh, Sunak trying to follow through on his promises made in his campaign to be Conservative Party leader last year. The grooming gang's story is a complex one and and this new policy has sort of kicked up a lot of the issues that have, have plagued the story for the last 20 years since it's been really in the public domain. And here to discuss the issue, to discuss the Prime Minister's policy, but also really to try and get into the story and the history of the grooming gangs, what exactly has happened, who's done what to who, why it's happened, and the extent of this is uh, documentary filmmaker and journalist Charlie Peters. Charlie, thank you so much for coming to speak with me today. Thank you very much for having me. So, Charlie was the uh, director of the film Grooming Gangs, Britain's Shame, which was released earlier this year. And um, it's actually pretty harrowing, unpleasant watching, but a significant and important film nonetheless. Um, And also, Charlie has just come back from interviewing the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. So I thought perhaps we should start, before going into the history of it all and the complex history of it all, start with the Prime Minister's announced policy and... Uh, the significance of it, where, by what metrics uh, we can assume they'll be successful, how we judge this, wh- and whether you think they'll be effective. So, Charlie, perhaps, perhaps you, can, you can let me sure. know what you think about the, the announcement. Well, the, the headline policy is the NCA-supported task force. It's a national crime agency. So a new task force has been set up for across the country, in, in England, that is specifically, for a task force to go into and support police forces dealing with child sexual exploitation, and specifically under the grooming model of exploitation. Now, this is a very exciting policy because the National Crime Agency have enjoyed significant success when they've investigated Rotherham, kind of the the headline of this national scandal in terms of the towns affected by it. There are also a couple of other smaller policies announced with this raft of new packages. Um, possibly this most significant after the task force is this new focus on the collection of ethnicity data, a significant struggle for governments in the last decade since this story really erupted and that there's not been a clear picture of the ethnicity data. There's been a lack of understanding there. They've also introduced a new mandatory reporting bill to report so that child safeguarding professionals now must report when they suspect an incident of child sexual abuse. Um, Now, mandatory reporting has been campaigned for in many forms for various different groups for a long time. And it was a recommendation of the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse published last year. So that's also a significant announcement. Also among the announcements are, I think also very importantly, a new minimum punishment for 
grooming gang offenders in terms of imprisonment. We'll go into this later, I'm sure, but very many. Is this the new serious aggravating offence? That's right. So a a new minimum kind of judicial sentence, because all too often uh, offenders have been released from prison after a few years and they've not managed to secure the, the sentence that was appropriate. And also there's more money for a whistleblowing helpline that the NSPCC runs, £600,000 for them. So it's a, a significant raft of measures. And the reason why I'm well acquainted with them is that the NCA supported task force, the new minimum sentencing regulations, and indeed the focus on holding the police to account on ethnicity data are three policies that I explicitly called for in my film, Grooming Gang Britain Shame, for GB News. So the policies have, I mean, it's like, the highlight of my career and probably will be forever. They've been, mm-hmm. they've been lifted directly from the film into law within two months. Mm-hmm. So how do you think we can see their effectiveness? Like what, mm-hmm. seeing as you have come up with these policies, mm-hmm. why do you think that they're going to work and, and how do we know whether they're, they're, they're effective? Sure, I'll ask the same question to the Home Secretary on Monday. How will you judge in particular the, the new task force? How will its success be given? She gave me a pretty waffly answer. So there's still, you have to be holding this government to account on well, this how will policy. you hold them to account? I will hold them to account by checking whether or not new perpetrators are found and whether or not the parachuted in specialist CSA experts within the police do indeed put their money where their mouth is mm-hmm. and with these new resources actually secure the prosecutions that so many are asking for. Because when the NCA was brought into Rotherham, they did make dozens of more prosecutions and they did find over 100 more survivors during the period they're investigating. Hmm. So I think it's highly likely that the NCA-supported task force, when it is called in to the various towns that um, this scourge has has hit, and we found up to 50 different towns and cities in the 18-month-long investigation for the film where grooming gangs have been, credible reports of grooming gangs have been found, I will hold them to account by checking whether or not they are finding these perpetrators and whether the... The pathetic approach to dealing with these gangs is finally reverted. On the minimum sentencing, that's pretty easy to check. Are grooming gang abusers being released from prison after two or three years? There are in many cases. Are they going to open prison after serving a quarter of their sentence, as some of them have? Well, that's actually, I think, what was the case with the recent, mm-hmm. um, and it's been, I think you even described it as the icebreaker case, that the High Court awarded survivor uh, mm-hmm. four hundred twenty-five thousand pounds. This is a, only a few weeks ago, right. um, where uh, rapist and groomer Askar Bostan not only he only served half of his sentence, but that was served in an open prison. Yeah, right. and that survivor Elizabeth. I mean, I've worked with her for eighteen months in the course of my investigation. One of the several survivors. She's I've, the victim. That she's survivor. a survivor of this this particular abuser. She launched that icebreaker legal case because she felt the state was not supporting her. She was not receiving the justice that she needed from the authorities sworn to protect her. And, you know, appallingly had to take justice into her own hands, Mm. not in a sort of vigilante way, although I think some of that might have been legitimate, but more having to, in her own civil case, pursue a prosecution and a civil victory against her abuser, which she's achieved. And I think this will open up hundreds, possibly thousands of more cases Mm. for survivors to think, hang on, I can actually finally achieve something that the state has failed me for. But now with this announcement last week, there is the hope that two things can happen at once. Survivors can achieve their own justice, but the state can also step in at the same time and ensure 
that there aren't more survivors like that, uh -huh. many thousands waiting for the justice they deserve. I think with the, the case of Elizabeth, it's worth noting that for anyone who didn't have any doubt, an open prison means that they are actually free to roam and have to yeah. go check in at the end of the day to prison. So not that much from being different from being free. Yeah. So do you think with both that case and this case. Are you optimistic then? Is this, does, is this a turning point in the grooming gang scandal? Well, that's my hope. I mean, I, f I feel cautiously optimistic. And indeed, that's the language that I heard from Maggie Oliver, a significant campaigner in this story, and three survivors I, I spoke to in person on Monday in Rochdale. Who, they had just met the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary moments before to discuss the policy and to share their experiences. Mm -hmm. They all told me the same thing, that they were Firstly, elated just to have someone at the top of government actually take them seriously for once because, well, we've had oh, so many prime ministers in the last five minutes, but in the decades since this scandal erupted, they haven't, none of them have taken this problem seriously, I don't think, even slightly. And I think there is, you know, like I said, a cautious optimism that with these policies, if they are followed through properly, change will happen. Mm -hmm. With that, plus Elizabeth having her extraordinary win, not about the money, about justice. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's like the first time this story has been able to generate smiles. So in both cases, and particularly last week, with the announcement from the government, this, the same old sort of kickback has, has erupted with amongst other politicians, Labour pushing back against it, but also the media. And mm. this, is, this has really been what has clouded the whole story and what makes it such a complex story to really understand. So I wondered whether... We go but into the, the, the details and the history mm -hmm. of the grooming gangs for people who might not understand exactly mm -hmm. uh, what happened. Now, I don't know if it's an appropriate starting point, but the, what's the, the root of the contention, whether mm -hmm. it's the media or politicians, is the ethnic makeup and, and representation amongst abusers and victims and survivors. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, and perhaps this is contentious, Swella Braverman in her speech said, local reviews in, in Rochdale, Rotherham, Telford exposed the systemic rape, abuse and exploitation of vulnerable young women and girls by organised gangs, almost all of them British Pakistani men. Yeah. Now, there have been various reports over the last 10, 15 years, 20 years, suggesting a mix here. So on the one hand, there's some extremes which suggest, I think the Quilliam report in 2017 suggested that 80, something like 84, 87% were British Pakistani men. But then, and, and this is what you got at in your film, that actually it was 30% white men of the abusers and 28%... That's from the 2020 Home Office report. But do you accept those well, numbers? I mean, the, uh, only a small portion of... Well, the Home Office report found that data collection on ethnicity had been extremely poor across the country. So deep was the sense of concern about the racialized background of this crime. And so strong was the shrouding sense of political correctness that police forces and local councils and researchers and government data had simply failed to collect the data. They just hadn't done it. So many police forces had none at all. And indeed, since the Home Office report was published in 2020, some police forces have been found to still be failing to collect the data. So there has been a reticence to establish the truth about this. Which is why you're so happy about the new policy to... Yes, because I think they'll, they'll not be held to account. They have to do it now. I mean, and they will be punished if they don't. But this problem has been going on for so long and people always refer back to this 2020 Home Office report when they say, oh, look, majority of abusers are white. 
that's obviously the case. This is a majority white country. 85% of the country is white. And so you'd expect with that proportion of the population, most abusers to be white. But when you actually you know, consider things per capita and by proportionality, even with the Home Office's very weak data and underreported collection of data from police forces, British Pakistanis in particular are vastly overrepresented. Mm-hmm. Over 10 times more likely to be a grooming gang abuser, according to their own weak statistics. Now, in a study that literally no one has responded to me on, in terms of the people who are very happy to run this line that the grooming gangs are not a kind of Asian or Pakistani problem, by comparing the number of prosecutions with the overall population, you actually do find that British Pakistanis in particular and British Muslims in general dominate grooming gang statistics. It's, the statistics are extremely troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it found by looking at kind of names and comparing them in court records, they found that one in every 2,200 Muslim men over 16 in England and Wales between 97 to 2017 had been prosecuted for this crime. And when you drive it down into the specific towns where this abuse has happened, where we know there have been massive, massive scandals, that figure tightens enormously. It tightens so much in Rotherham that it's one in every 72 British Pakistani has been prosecuted for these crimes. Mm-hmm. And that matches with what we know happened on the ground. I mean, the, the J report published in 2014 found that despite being 2 to 3% of the population, the British Pakistani population of Rotherham was about 8,000, they were vastly overrepresented in grooming gang abuse of 1,400 girls. It's a small town. Do you town. have a sense of percentage of, when you say vastly overrepresented, like what, what, what sort of... Um, what, sort of, what would that number look like? Uh, like literally every girl reported their abuser as being Asian. Hmm. And they didn't... So know. there are no examples of, of I, non-Asians? Uh, I, between 97 and 2013, there are other examples of other abusers, of course, but hmm. the vast, vast majority were of that, of that heritage. And when the Home Office conducted studies in the town in the early noughties, they also found that abuse rings were centred around small Pakistani families in Rotherham as well. So the representation was clear. The same trend was found in Rochdale, and more recently, it was found also in Telford. And in every town where this overrepresentation has been found, and it is vast, at the same time, an equally troubling trend is found insofar as those sworn to protect women and girls in those towns choose to remove statistics on ethnicity from their reports, or they do not pursue abusers because they fear doing so would look racist. They do not start investigations into areas of the population, such as taxi drivers, because that's a, an area of particular Pakistani heritage in many of these towns, because they think it's going to be racist. They, fundamentally, they did not protect girls because they thought it would be racist. This was the consistent theme in those three major towns, and I think that's replicated elsewhere as well. I, I, I do want to get into the, the political correctness aspect, because that seems to be a phenomenon that's has driven a lot of the confusion around, around this topic, not only in how we understand it, but in, in the mechanisms at play in dealing with it. But I still want to feel like I understand this ethnic component, because although you've questioned the reliability of the 2020 Home Office report, mm-hmm. saying that 30% are white, so you're suggesting that... You're, are you saying, sorry, am I right to understand that in those specific towns that you've named, like, mm-hmm. like Telford, Rochdale, and Rotherham, that it was almost all, if not all, Pakistani men. And, and if, 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 let's say, the Home Office have come to the 30% number are white, is it that in other parts of the country yeah. there's different ethnic groups that... Yeah, sure. Yeah. The, the, the white breakdown would be like kind of gypsies, different Irish groups, 
white English. I mean, the white is a, as a subset of ethnicity data is broken down into smaller groups as well. There's also an overrepresentation of Middle Eastern men, of Black and Caribbean. Okay, um, so with each ethnicity, mm-hmm. are there different cultures at play that lead them to forming these gangs, these these groups? Is it is a different? What's going on? That's, what, is it all the same phenomenon? Or I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's a lot of talk about these being Pakistani mm-hmm. men. What is it about? Why why is there that hammering that it's Pakistan? What is sure. it about the culture of Pakistani men uh-huh. that is different from let's say the white people who are who are in grooming gangs? I would say that the overall cause of these crimes across the board, regardless of ethnicity, is a misogynistic, violent hate of girls in exchange for sex, people who want to abuse the defenceless and the innocent for their own pleasure. Mm-hmm. That is the most consistent theme across them. Now, where you find particular overrepresentation among the Pakistani community, there are more factors at play. So there is a racialized element insofar as white girls are considered fair game by many of the abusers. How have you come to that conclusion? The testimony of the survivors and the victims in court, the statements of the abusers themselves in court, in their police questioning, survivors telling me and indeed many other journalists that they were referred to as white slags, white whores, as worthless meat, essentially. And, and that's at the polite end of the spectrum mm-hmm. of some of the horrifying mm-hmm. language that they were used in. White girls being passed around in circles by men in a ball while they were subjected to racial abuse. This element of the crisis is never really referred to by the rest of the media and that it was a racialized crime. And there are reasons why people often don't discuss that. We have a, a very broken understanding of racism in Britain when we think of it like they do in the US in terms of systemic and it can only go in one direction or the other. There is this feeling of its privilege and power and therefore you can't be racist to white people, mm-hmm. etc. Well, clearly these men were extremely racist as they chose to attack white girls and describe them in that term. Many survivors also heard the term gory, gory girls, which is a, a term to describe them as kind of worthless as well. Mm-hmm. So this is a consistent theme. This is a very consistent theme. In fact, in the grooming gang case in Rochdale, only nine defendants went up in the end, despite you know, over 100 being on a database at one point. They Why? objected... Because they feared doing so. Sorry. Sorry. Did you say victims or... Defendants. Defendants. Oh, so only nine defendants who actually appeared in court during the, the prosecutions into Rochdale... The lead defendant, um, Sabir Ahmed, he objected to being tried by an all-white jury. I mean, they understood their own defence in racialized terms. There was a real clear sense of one community versus another. Hmm. This is a crisis of multiculturalism in general and British immigration policies of the last 50 years where you very quickly create separate societies. But when that blurred into abuse, that created an extremely dangerous situation. There are also additional cultural measures that made it difficult to prosecute these gangs and made it more difficult to infiltrate, understand and investigate what they were doing. And that it was, in the case of British Pakistanis, the, the prevalence of a kind of a clannish attitudes. Hmm. This is born out of, I believe, kind of socio-biological kinship. Cousin marriage is very common among the British Pakistani population. In Bradford, for example, a, a town which is very heavily Asian and Pakistani in, in particular, birth defects are well above the average rate across the country because first cousin marriage is so common. Now, when so many of your local community, and it's a very tight-knit community on geographical lines, but also on ethnic lines, if so many people who live around you are your blood brother, your blood cousin, you are less likely to dob them in, and you're also more likely to associate them 
associate with them and be aligned with them in your life. Mm-hmm. This makes it harder for investigators, if they even do want to tackle them, to break into that net, to find someone who would give them support, someone to whistleblow. There are also, there's also another factor at play here. I mean, we could, I could talk about that for hours, but we probably shouldn't. Another factor at play would be also the extremely misogynistic values and attitudes that are prevalent among some immigrant groups more than the kind of indigenous English or British population. So it is true. Values imported from their yeah, country of origin. Yeah, values imported from the Mirpur region of Pakistan are not the same as they are in progressive parts of Richmond, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Richmond, North Yorkshire or Richmond, southwest London. Now, many, many Pakistani girls were abused by these gangs. Sometimes they are family members. What percentage of the girls were white? We just don't know. We just don't know. The data isn't there. But in terms of... You don't know what percentage of the girls were white? Well, many of the survivors haven't come forward. Sure. So what we know, in terms of what we know, it's like almost all. But but a lot of the the data is missing on the the survivors as well. But almost all young girls are white in Britain. There we go, yeah. So it wouldn't necessarily primarily be a race-hate crime. It would be a sexual abuse crime. These men... Just are just sexual perverts, right? Uh-huh. Primarily, and and the race factor maybe is a secondary thing. I don't. When the murder, it, it, when the murder of Stephen Lawrence happened, and he was killed by a white gang, nobody turned around and said, "Ah, oh, but the majority of men in England are white." So what? You know, the abusers being white doesn't mean that it was racist. I think it's clear in the language they used and the way they targeted them, and knowing that their immediate availability of the girls around them were their own heritage, that they chose to target white girls instead. Now, there are so many other reasons why, but I think it's really important to nail this point about misogyny as well, because they had a hateful understanding of what women were worth. And in many cases, that's still true. Mm-hmm. So women in South Asian and Pakistani backgrounds in particular in Britain don't have a lot of cultural or economic power. Mm. They're often not allowed to work, they're not allowed to leave the home. They don't have a say in what happens. And so when young Asian girls were abused by these gangs, as they often were, indeed often by their own family members mm-hmm. in the case of the lead defendant in Rochdale that was true while also running a gang of white girls he abused he also sexually assaulted and raped for many years a family member when that happens there is an additional layer preventing those girls from coming forward and telling their story because it might destroy their marriage prospects because if you come from mm. an extremely poor town and live in an extremely poor family in a very backwards-looking cultural setup and family, often marriage is your only way to mm-hmm. get by. Your family might not allow you to work. They might not allow you to have a lot of education. They might say, you reach a certain point and now you're back in and you're looking after the men. Mm-hmm. That that's also caused a significant problem. It also meant that when men were abusing white girls, their families would not dob them in because the women had no power to object to what their husbands were doing that also means that when they leave prison after serving short sentences the ones that we know have been prosecuted and imprisoned in all the cases i've tracked i can't find a single example of a grooming gang rapist leaving prison and being banished by his community they go home they go home Mm -hmm. they might move their home they might move with their family to another part of the country in the case of a, a notorious abuser in Telford, he just moved 50 miles down the road. But he moved with his wife. And that's true in a lot of these places. Mm. Now, when a white man goes to prison for child abuse, he's often killed more often than he is allowed to return to his family. 
Okay. Is that what statistically? No, I mean, just that happens a lot. Pedophiles are often demolished in prison. A mm. lot of them end up with that the most the most appalling abusers often meet a, a violent justice they wouldn't mm. otherwise receive at the hands of the state while in prison. And if they do get out, they certainly aren't welcomed back with open arms by the places they used to live in. Mm. Or at least if they are, as I'm sure they do in some cases, the rate of that is significantly lower than it is among Asian communities. So I think that's a really important way of understanding why, one of the reasons why this scourge has continued for so long. And this is an area of investigation that many people have just completely ignored. I, I know it's quite, it might seem quite callous to talk statistics about such a horrific thing, but I, I, do, no, it's vital. I do think it's vital in, in trying to get to the root of, of what is, seems to be so confusing mm-hmm. and, and contentious. And one of the, I think, successes of your film is humanizing and turning the statistics into real life stories, particularly given that so many of the victims and survivors are not in a position where they can come out and yeah. talk about it. It's notable that we don't have, there isn't a household name for a survivor, despite, and, and this is pretty striking, but there's the case of Laura Wilson, aged 17, stabbed 14 times to death mm-hmm. uh, for revealing to the family of her abuser that they were they had some sort of relationship and then Lucy Lowe aged 15 burnt to death with her mother sister and unborn child these aren't household names and this is such an extensive horrific scandal and I, I wondered if what insight you gleaned into the 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 type of girls that are falling prey mm. to these abusers this is difficult. This is a really difficult area of discussion where, again, with much of this scandal, there is a, an incomplete picture of understanding based on the statistical analysis. There is not enough data or investigation from social services who often actively ignored discussing this problem. A big scandal... A big problem within this scandal is that the girls have often been derided as being reckless, off the loose, uh, wild young things, going crazy and having Asian boyfriends. Or at the same time, they've been described as kind of damaged girls in care who are, you know, not bothered by the protection of the states and nobody cares about them. Neither of those things describe the full extent of the story. A small portion of the girls who had been abused by these gangs were in care. A lot of them had loving parents. A lot of them had stable families. But because of the complete ignorance of the local authorities and the police, they were caught up in this whirlwind of abuse. Child sexual exploitation doesn't just happen to weak children who are poor and ignored. It happens to people who are isolated by meticulous and evil men. And indeed often captured by women in a trend that hasn't really been discussed, a lot of women used by these gangs to lure in and gain the trust of girls um, who are naive and children and innocent and, and trust adults. So because of the very few number of survivors who are public and, yeah, that's a handful who are in the media, and if they are in the media, they're often doing so anonymously, as all of the survivors I work with are, and there are many reasons why they're anonymous. I mean, their abusers are often just out and about still. Or if mm. they've been punished, they've returned. They see them in the supermarket. They see them in the street. They see mm. them at work sometimes. But also because they don't 
I mean, in the case of at least one survivor I know very well, I mean, they just don't trust the public to acknowledge and appreciate their story. They think that they will be sacrificed on the altar of political correctness and that their testimony will be heard, ignored and recycled in favour of protecting the status quo, the dominant culture and the preference for community cohesion over the truth. Right? In that situation, who can blame them for staying hidden? Who can blame the number of, you know, the possible thousands of survivors who have not come forward with their stories? Mm -hmm. That's one of the questions I actually asked Willa Bravin on Monday last week was, you know, what would you say to the women and girls who have been too afraid to tell their story because they never felt that the police or the government were on their side? Which is how they have felt and why, and they should feel that way. I mean, they should feel because the police and the government have not been on their side. I was happy to describe this as a turning point because I think, I hope, actually, that lots of women and girls do see this as a moment when they can start to well, that's one, trust the authorities. One of the striking things about your film and, and something we should get into, which is the failure of local uh, councils, local mm -hmm. uh, social services and local police. I mean, one example, again, from your film is, is a, a young girl, a, a young survivor going into the police station mm. and deciding to turn around before make, filing the report because she gets spooked out of it, she gets somehow approached, I don't know, on her phone. She got a message on her phone. Got a message on her phone saying that her brother has been captured and if she mm -hmm. says anything, they'll break his legs or something. She, she don't, he, her brother's legs had already been broken by the gang. Her abuser messaged her on her phone to say that he had her 11-year-old sister. That the torment that she was enduring was going to be passed on to her sister. And a very brave researcher from the Home Office, this was in the early noughties, you know, 20 years ago now, was sent up there to kind of investigate what was going on in the town in terms of drug dealing. And then quickly found actually there was a, the, the drug dealing in Rotherham was revolved around an abuse ring and a child abuse ring. And so that she found that they were connected. And these girls were being ignored by the social services, but this researcher from London was establishing a link with several of the survivors and convinced one of the victims to kind of come forward with her claims. And then that happened, gets to the police station how that message reached her and how the abuser knew that she was in the police station has never, ever been explained. The report that unveiled that crisis found no kind of no smoking gun. But it's almost certain that he was informed by someone in the police station she was there. And indeed, later, one of the police officers in Rotherham, PC Hassan Ali, was placed under investigation for his corrupt role, well, his alleged corruption and he died the same day he was run over by a family friend I mean I spoke to you earlier about clannish attitudes and clannish links and how people don't dob in their family members a police officer is put under investigation for his links to grooming gangs and he is killed the same day run over on a snowy drive near Sheffield I mean it's just, it's just it isn't a coincidence that that happened in my opinion mm. okay I just think it's highly highly unlikely highly highly unlikely that on the same day the investigation started, he was killed. And there's no inquisitive national investigation into why that happened. There's no kind of urgent plea to, to dig into that. And I tried, trust me, but it happened so long ago. And I'm, in many ways, I'm late to the story, right? Mm. But I can't find a great amount of national agitation to try and find out that link. And, and, a, and a, a part of the failure has been the political, political correctness mm -hmm. aspect. And... Yep. and 
there were turning points, and, and, and we should talk about, uh, I think, specifically Andrew Norfolk and, mm-hmm. and how things seem to turn around. But, but there's, a, there's a political correctness thing and the, 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 the people being too scared to address the cultural differences and, yeah. and, and those cultural crossfires that, mm-hmm. that this seems to lie on. What, what do you put that down to? Is that, is that I mean, 1999 was the McPherson report, so you, you, there's a sort of fear of being called racist. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is, it as, is it as simple as that? It's, this, this it's, part, it's part of it, but it's also just that there's a general shift in our political culture towards like, a, like an uber-tolerance where reality is sidelined in favour of prioritising the kind of the zeal of diversity, whereby... Um, different crimes committed by different groups according to different failures and different perspectives are sidelined and are treated as kind of fake mm. or, or not worthy of being prioritised because that might kind of cut away at the the number one priority, which is the defence of multiculturalism, multiracialism and yeah. kind of liberalism in our culture. So that is, I think that is the overall scandal. And the efforts of government bodies, charities the civil service, the media, all these groups to reinforce that through things like the McPherson Report and other kind of discussions and investigations only solidifies that kind of political failure. So that's part of it. That's a, well, that's the, 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 what happened to Sarah Champion mm-hmm. at the Labour Party, she's in the shadow cabinet for Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. wrote an article for The Sun at specifically saying this is a cultural ethnic issue, mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. Um, uh, specifically it's majority Pakistani men, mm-hmm. and she was. Uh, yeah, there, there are things you can't say. I mean, she was kicked out of the kicked out of the, the shadow cabinet. Because so, there, so there were there were repercussions, which surely just in, just enforced. Yeah, yeah. The truth is not acceptable in favour when it when it when it beats down at kind of like the religiously held perspectives of the left mm-hmm. in these in these cases, and that's true not just of politicians but also of cultural people. But saying of the left, it's not been so clear um, that it, that the left. Have, even though they're now pushing back, but they are in 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 opposition. But Labour MP Anne Cryer, yeah, but she's a, was, she's a, she, I mean, was one MP, of the first to report it, and also Sarah Champion. There's some amount of courage mm. for her in the first place mm-hmm. to speak out on this, to write for the Sun on this. So actually, it's not surely it's not that simple as to say, oh, it's all the left who, who have failed on this topic. Anne Cryer was ignored, and Sarah Champion was expelled. So mm. that's how the left dealt with the two brave people they've had who mm. stood forward. If you're a conservative or if you're on the right or whatever, if you speak up against this issue, it doesn't harm your life. It doesn't ruin your political career. That's how I would describe the split. Now, I'm enormously grateful to anyone who is you know, politically red or left-leaning or communitarian or whatever who speaks up on this issue, especially if they have power, because they are doing something enormously brave, which is telling the truth, because that's a scandalous thing to do if you belong to the red team while also caring about this issue. But it's clear, I think, that punishment for holding the wrong opinion on this space has been predominantly um, applied to those on the left because like I said the, the kind of the deference towards diversity the religiously held like conviction that diversity is a good thing cannot be cut away by its critics and especially not on something as damning as this scandal because this scandal kind of like it, it, it just it destroys that entire worldview it completely cuts apart of the idea that you can just transform a local society with completely alien culture mm. overnight or at least very, very quickly and expect everything to be fine. It, it completely destroys the universalist understanding of how these communities should, of how the world works. The understanding that like 
a, a global sense of solidarity will mean that if you bring, you know, thousands of people from the Mirpur region of northern Pakistan and then drop them into a depressed Victorian mining town in South Yorkshire, that everything will be fine. Because clearly it won't. I mean, in Oldham in 2001, this is in Lancashire, there were race riots. I mean, there have been enormous periods of tension between the local communities in these places and nothing exposes it more. Nothing cuts away at, at the conviction of the left on this issue more than the grooming gang scandal. It, de- mm. it, de- it demolishes their worldview. They cannot allow it to be discussed. They cannot mm. allow their data to be collected. They will refuse to bring this up. And every time this story comes in, they will deploy any method whatsoever to discredit the people who raise it. They will describe you as racist. They will say that your data is false. They will refer back to the dodgy 2020 Home Office report. They will do everything they can to shut you down. In Rotherham, where obviously so many councillors were a disaster, one man in particular was was, was singled out in, in the Casey report into Rotherham Council in 2015. He was called Maru Hussain. He was the community cohesion minister, just to really ram this point home. He... Uh, he accused a fellow Labour Party member, he made a false accusation of racism against a, a Labour Party member when they tried to talk about the prominence of a Pakistani taxi drivers in these gangs. So it's just, it's a consistent thing that happens across the board. Well, I would say, if it's a failure of the left, I wouldn't say the Conservative Party have been much oh, yeah. better and they've been in government. And this feels like the first real movement after, as, as we've said, a decades-long scandal. So I'm not sure the Conservatives well, no, yeah. are too much better. No, but I it's agree. certainly I true agree. that uh, Lisa Nandy said that um, she's the shadow... She's still the shadow levelling up, Secretary? Or she certainly was when she said that the grooming happens across all cultures. And mm-hmm. then Yvette Cooper has come out saying that these, this new policy by the Prime Minister... Isn't isn't going? She doesn't think it's going to be effective. Yeah, have you seen what she said? Yeah, and I have seen. I've seen it all. The West what York- do you think of what? Well, West Yorkshire Mayor Tracy Brabham said on Sunday when Swilla Brabham made her comments when she noted the prominence of British Pakistanis. Tracy Brabham, I think, perhaps wasn't prepared for this. Wasn't prepared for a politician to state the truth. She described it as dog whistle politics. I mean, that's a prime example. Hmm. The story comes up. The issue is raised. The prominence of Pakistanis in this story is outlined. The failure to deal with it and the political correctness that you know, shrouded investigations and blocked prosecutions. And there we have it. On, on the BBC Sunday morning, a Labour politician saying, oh, this is a dog whistle. This is essentially saying you're racist for doing this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could not be more clear that it's still going on. You know, the reason why I made the film, not only just to obviously try and raise attention to the policies I thought would help, but also to, to restart the national conversation on this issue. Mm. And one of the reasons why I've been cautiously optimistic I'm elated that these policies have been adopted and that people are talking about it again but I'm quite depressed because everything I've seen in the last week since the announcement was made has been like the machine rising up to destroy people who are making this point Suella Braverman is racist Rishi Sunak is racist the people who may I mean I've been called racist like over a thousand times in the last week on Twitter just for simply pointing out government data local mm. reports commissioned by social workers yeah. for, for, for stating the truth I've been you know pillory. statistics well how are you supposed to solve a problem if you're not able to diagnose the problem in there the first go. place which again I don't see anything you're saying. You're, you're not saying that Pakistani people or culture is the problem. You're, you're specifically saying that these in these areas, these specific cultures have the have been a problem. We need to understand why that is, and that's that seems to me to be what you're doing. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, 
one of the, you know, saying something like dog whistles, one of the, the, the parts of this complex story has been that the likes of Tommy Robinson have been covering the story and it's sort of become their preserve. Yeah. And it, and it just adds to that sort of concept that it's, 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 it's a far-right sort of fantasy. And, and that's dominated even after Andrew Norfolk's original reporting in, in 2003 for The Times. It seems to have... Well, he didn't write anything in 2003. Anne Cryer no. raised the problem in 2003, and Andrew Norfolk dismissed... He wrote one story, and he dismissed it as a far-right fantasy. Now, Andrew Norfolk is The Times journalist, the investigator, who kind of blew the lid off this scandal in 2011 and 2012 when he wrote his reports from Rotherham. But for eight or nine years before he did that, he was convinced he had some sort of like liberal guilt. He had some... He didn't really agree with what Anne Cryer told him. Mm. But, you know, a sense of... A journalistic sense that something really was going on kicked in and he started researching court records, met with Jane Senior, the whistleblower, who was working in the social services and, and children's services in the town at the time, trying desperately to raise awareness of what was going on. And his reporting in the town led to an investigation by uh, Alexis J, the social worker, Professor Alexis J. So up until that point, the only people who were talking about it were the far right, because there was a concerted effort on the ground by the people who operated politically in these areas, predominantly Labour Party, trade unions and left-wing organisations to shut it down. And I've, um, as part of my kind of 18 months of obsessing over this story, I've looked through leaflets from campaigns from like 2006 and in small towns, like election, like council election campaigns, not just from the Labour Party, but also like leafleting from groups like United Against Fascism, leafleting from um, outreach groups for like pro-immigration bodies. I'm seeing a UAF, United Against Fascism, a leaflet that said the BMP are spreading lies about child grooming by Pakistani men in this town. If the BMP were right about this issue 20 years ago. You might think that their conclusions were evil, the repatriation of Pakistanis, um, you know, the, an all-white to England and all the rest of it. But in terms of actually talking about this problem and noting it was going on, they were right and everybody mm. else ignored them. Right. So it's, it's only been the preserve of the far right, a term which is expanding of course possibly to include me now um because others have ignored it mm -hmm. right so if if decent people and people from other political persuasions fail to recognize and admit you know an epidemic of child rape it is not the fault of the far right for discussing it. it's the fault of them for ignoring it and and the consequence is that if it's only the far right who mm -hmm. are discussing it then it's the only the far right who are coming up with policy yeah. to try and deal with it they're going to come up with extremist abhorrent there solutions we which we we cannot have so mm -hmm. the, the conversation needs to be had so that we find serious mm -hmm. solutions f for societal cohesion and for these young girls who, who need justice and and since the policy announcements made last week, you haven't actually seen any criticism, serious criticism or an alternative proposal by the people who are cutting away at, at the ideas. So I just don't think people want to solve the problem mm -hmm. on, on the other side, as it were. Or the people who don't want to have this conversation about child grooming gangs and sex gangs don't really have alternative provisions in the same way. Or mm -hmm. the Labour Party, I mean, Sakir Starmer, when the announcement, mandatory reportering went out, he said, oh, I was calling for this 10 years ago. 
Um, and that's great. I mean, it's fine to be calling for, Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, people have been calling for mandatory reporting for decades. And it's great that it's finally being introduced. Mm. But in terms of specialist officers to deal with gangs and a collection of ethnicity data and a no-holds-barred investigation and holding the police to account of these areas, nobody's been calling for that until last week. So, mm. no. I just don't, I don't accept that they would come up with solutions without being prodded by someone else. One of the most sad things about the film was the, the feeling that things weren't getting better. And even though these new policies seem to be a step in the right direction, what more do you think needs to be done? Mm -hmm. And is there anything that people, let's say, watching... Can, can do yeah well the reason why I know it's still going on is just because I've been looking into it for so long I work very closely with a charity called the Maggie Oliver Foundation Maggie Oliver is the Greater Manchester Police whistleblower who blew the lid on the Rochdale sex gang scandal she was part of a team that compiled over a hundred paedophiles onto a database in Greater Manchester in Rochdale in, in particular took some time off work because her husband Norman died. And when she came back to work, she found that the database had been destroyed and none of the prosecutions had been delivered. Um, the last date for discussing the database, Operation Augusta, was the day before the 7-7 bombing. And in the film, I question whether or not the sudden blast of an Islamist attack meant that police chiefs in Greater Manchester felt it was too difficult for them to then start pursuing predominantly Muslim men in, in sex gangs. I think almost certainly that is the case. Greater Manchester Police didn't reach out to me when I asked them for details. Um, so the Maggie Oliver Foundation, working with them, I got to look at the work they were doing. I got to look at their annual report for this year before it was released. They've supported over a thousand victims in the last two years who are seeking support because they are being fobbed off by the police and social services. They're currently working on over 60 live cases of victims being abused by these gangs across the country. And this is a small charity, so we can take it as given that whatever they capture is a small mm -hmm. representation of the wider problem. Hundreds seeking support for legal aid and kind of emotional kind of therapy and assistance in their lives. Because you know obviously this this can destroy you. So yeah, we do know it's still going on. Mm -hmm. And I've you know I've donated to the Maggie Foundation as I've worked along and I would encourage others to do so because I can't find another group that's doing as good work as them mm -hmm. while also being true to the issue. Mm -hmm. The NSPCC has been given £600,000 by the government to support its whistleblowing helpline. But also a day after Suella Braverman said that Pakistani men were overrepresented in this abuse, the NSPCC came out and said, oh, you can't say that. And that, that, risks, that risks a blind spot in our analysis of these gangs, etc. No, the blind spot we've had has been people ignoring Pakistani grooming gangs. That's where the real blind spot has been. Mm. You know, people are very alert to other issues. The police have been, well, they've actually they've been pretty shoddy at dealing with sex abuse across the, the country, but they've been especially bad at dealing with these gangs. That's where the real blind spot mm. has been happening. And I, I thought that was just an unbelievable statement. That they're more concerned with offending the abusers than protecting these the most vulnerable yes. people in our country yes. is just utterly shocking. Yes, um, and and one can only hope that that 
things have changed last week with this new policy. And, and um, I urge watchers and listeners to watch your film, which, which actually is a very good introduction, as I hope this conversation might have been. And um, I wonder whether you'd be making another film, because it seems like it's an ongoing story. So, so uh, is, w- might you be making more? Or Yeah, well, the, the GB News investigates brand, as it were, the team. Mm-hmm. Our mission is to cover stories which has stories that have the biggest gap between the interest paid by the population and the interest paid by the establishment and the political world in particular. We started with the biggest version of that, as I've, I think I think I've, I've demonstrated in this conversation, mm-hmm. which is the grooming gang scandal. There is a huge, there's a huge gap between interest of people and of the establishment there, and there will be more films and investigations and documentaries in that space in general. But I will not leave the grooming gang story behind. Mm-hmm. Now that these policies are in, holding the government to account—that's your responsibility account. now, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, I know, and I hope others join in as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of other journalists have done fantastic work here. Yeah, um, Geraldine McKelvey at The Mirror basically forced the Telford Inquiry, which found a thousand victims from the 1980s onwards. Wow. She forced that because the, the Telford Council said, oh, we don't need an independent investigation, we've done our own. And indeed, the man who wrote a letter to the Home Secretary in 2015 saying, we don't need an independent inquiry, he's still the council leader. Andrew Norfolk, of course, at the Times, blowing the lid off the Rotherham scandal. He's still on top of this story, and the Times still does excellent, excellent work on the grooming gang scandal. Mm-hmm. But it should be more. It should be more across the rest of the media. And um, I hope, yeah, with these policies, there's now a, I suppose there's now a political incentive to care. Mm-hmm. Because this is an opportunity for people to check that the government is doing what it says it will do. Mm-hmm. So even if it's the wrong incentive, I think the right incentive should mm-hmm. be the protection of women and girls, regardless of their abuser. Mm-hmm. This, I hope, will usher in more investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, Charlie Peters, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Thank you.